This is the WTF Bach Podcast. This is the podcast about all things Johann Sebastian Bach. Brought to you by Evan Shinners. WTF Bach. Brought to you by Evan Shinners. Join WTF Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. And now, here's WTF Bach. Hello, it's WTF Bach here, moniker of one Evan Shinners, and you may call me either. The goal of this podcast is to be your guide through a tale of three things, quill, ink, and paper, through whose combination one mind walked the world of human emotion over and again, and then some, to set your ears on structural or biographical aspects of this music by one J.S. Bach, with the hope that it helps you gain more appreciation for it. Now this is an interview episode. From time to time, I aim to bring onto this show people who come from various backgrounds but are somehow all united around Bach, and at least in these early episodes, discuss the art of fugue. So my guest today is... Jack Stratton, founding member of the band Wolfpack. Now, every era, every genre has their Velasquez or their John Cage. So tell me what you think of this. An album made for Spotify called Sleepify, with 10 tracks, all either 31 or 32 seconds in length. They are entitled, in order, Z, 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 now, the band encouraged their fans to loop this album when they slept. Why? Because every track is just silence. Mr. Stratton figured that if Spotify is playing something, why not play silence during sleep to at least figure out where their fans were listening? And from this, Stratton was not only able to tell where their fans were listening, but to use these royalties to fund a series of free concerts in those locations. Is this not the 4 minutes and 33 seconds of streaming music? Why does Jack belong on a podcast about Bach and about the Art of Fugue? Well, because when perusing the Wikipedia page for the Art of Fugue, as one does, I noticed a funny thing. A funk band called Wolfpack arranging the Art of Fugue? I had to get to the bottom of it. And since the music world is very small, and since admittedly I can live pretty isolated within my Bach bubble, it turns out that we have many mutual friends, even one mutual friend with whom I've played Bach and who played funk with Wolfpack at Madison Square Garden. Well, that's right. Wolfpack sold out Madison Square Garden in 2019. They were one of the first bands to do so without a manager, without a label. I just love that fact. So please enjoy this interview with Mr. Jack Stratton. We spoke for about an hour, and the conversation went everywhere, from Facebook to Klezmer, from Mozart to Steely Dan. I sought to have the WTF Bach interviews Jack Stratton episode, but even like from the first sentence, Jack flips the question onto me and says, hey, hey, is this true about Bach? Is this true about Bach? And it was only after a few minutes that I was able to start asking him the questions about his background and figure out how someone who started on drum set with the Beatles, instead of the Beatle, who is Beethoven, could still find his way to Bach, and of course find his way to the art of fugue, because I'm telling you, the deeper you get into music, the more you realize that all roads lead to this dark, mysterious mountain called the art of fugue. Jack has been on that road. Jack clearly admires the musician with polyphonic abilities, the musician who's able to compose first on paper, and I love the way he reacts to hearing about the legendary anecdotes about Bach and Mozart. And I do see similarities between Bach and Jack Stratton, and it has to do with mediums. Bach was obsessed with finding a medium like the solo violin and figuring out a way to go to every end to completely encompass this medium. The same thing with the organ or the cello. And although some of you purists might cringe, Jack finds his mediums in social media. This aforementioned Spotify album, the way he thinks about Twitter, even recently as of September 2020, he was selling, quote, prime auditory real estate on his latest album on eBay. He takes these seemingly 
fickle things and spins them into really beautiful artistic statements. I find this creative, forward-thinking, and of course, because he admires Bach's craft, I find a mind like Jack Stratton's very encouraging. This is all to say nothing about the quality of Wolfpeck's music, and if you don't already know, V-U-L-F-P-E-C-K. And if you like funk, well, WT Funk are you waiting for? And now, on this special episode of the WTF Funk Podcast, please, please welcome Jack, Jack Stratton. So, Jack Stratton, welcome to the show. Right on, yeah, I'm, I'm super excited to, uh, to get into it. I've been, I've been searching for someone uh, truly obsessed to ask a few questions of, so I think you're the guy. Great. Well, let's let's find out. All right. Yeah, I've heard this phrase before. Some musicians begin eras, some end them. That this was said about Bach by someone famous at some point. Do you think that's true? Does that make any sense? I don't think it's true. I mean, he may have ended music. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in in that in that there's a lot of great quotes saying that if all the music destroyed after Bach, if if all music were destroyed after Bach. Uh, it could be recreated through Bach's music. Interesting. Yeah, I think I think it was said about Bach that he ended an era, as you know, put the put the. I I, I don't know. I don't know if if uh, if you feel that way or if did I I I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the origin. I think it was maybe Mendelssohn said it. I don't know. You know, it's true that his music was, I suppose, falling. Out of fashion, slightly toward the end right. of his his life, but it wasn't ever like it was um, so out of fashion. It it might have been ten years or fifteen years out of fashion, but it, you know Bach, uh, say seventeen twenty five, is right in the thick of everything that's going on. Okay, okay, so that's not really true that he was he was uh, undiscovered or something. No, I think that is sort of a myth that he was forgotten about. You see, the thing that happened is that fugues were not popular at a time when Bach was writing the art of fugue. Ah. And that that might have something to do with it. It was that the family, the estate, was going broke sort of right as Bach died. And they thought, well, what are we going to do with this big thing that he's been working on, this art of fugue? I mean, fugues aren't aren't popular anymore. What are are we going to do with this? Okay, okay. Yeah, we're at... This this is why this is fun is that I have kind of a uh, freshman year level understanding of the whole thing. I mean, I've I'm down. I'm down in a big way. Like I don't actually know. I I've always felt he was different. I've always had that sense. Something was was definitely different. So it, like um were any were any of his kids uh on his level? Is that like, on, could they on, write like that? On his level, I mean, you know, in that, uh, well, Albert Schweitzer puts it that his sons have either the tendency to be overrated or underrated just based on the greatness <laughs> of, you know, J.S. Um, interesting, interesting. His kids straddled the different eras. You know, you have his eldest son, W.F., and he was writing very much in the Baroque vein. And then you have his younger sons who were sort of writing in the classical idioms. Right, but right. Um, no, you know the short the short answer is of course Bach was the, <laughs> you know JSB was was the one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I uh, when I was in music school, I was doing the recording program. I wasn't in the classical program, but uh, I wanted to do a project with 
with four trombones at four different uh, speeds. I thought that would be kind of cool. So I was asking around. I was like, can anyone, you know, write a serious fugue? Because um, I couldn't. And then it, it looked, it seemed like no one could. And I was like, wait a sec, is this, it never, I, I figured someone there could do it. But apparently you can't even, there's not many people that can even write those fugues anymore. Like, which is, it was, they're not even improvised, they're written. But they're, or you tell me, are, do you know people that can, that can write a serious fugue like that? Yeah, there are still people who can, who can even improvise fugues. You know, there are okay. Yeah, cool. So I, I cool. think mostly that belongs to the church organists of the world, um, who's cool. You know, they're they're still continuing in that tradition, but uh, yeah, sure. The the quality the quality is is lost. You know, there's that great story about Bach sitting in the church next to one of his sons, and as soon as the organist begins to improvise on a theme from which he's about to make a fugue, Bach whispers into the ear of his son, and he says. It can be inverted at the second note. It can be augmented on the third note. There could be a stretto at the fourth note and things like this. And then he will judge the quality of the improvisation based on how many of those things the organist checks off. And every time he does one of those things, Bach's sort of nudging his son going, see, I told you, second note inverted. Wow. Wow. What a scene. What a scene. Yeah. Do you, do you, uh, do, can people improvise, uh, four part fugues? Is that, that's impossible, right? No, very simple ones, sure. You know, okay, simple ones. I mean, the best sort of example we have of an improvised fugue by Bach is the Ricciacare in three voices from the musical offering, which, <laughs> it, as the story goes, is he was there in front of King Frederick of Prussia, and this theme, this royal theme, was played to Bach, and then the king said, can you improvise a fugue on it? And Bach sat down and improvised this three-voice fugue and wrote it down afterwards. And we believe that what he wrote down afterwards sort of uh, resembles the improvisation. And then the fugue, and then the king gets a, a little, a little greedy. He says, "Can you do it in six voices?" <laughs> he politely declines to play a fugue on the same theme in six voices, <laughs> but will improvise a fugue in six voices with a theme of his own choosing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So he, and then he did a, he did that with six parts. And then he did that. <laughs> and then in the carriage ride home, I, I, I picture it's the carriage ride home back to Leipzig. He actually writes out the Richikara in six voices. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, what do you think about that? Can you, can you hang with, with six voices or is, I've always felt four was like plenty. Can you can you hang with six? I I play the six voice Rishikari, but I can't claim that I'm keeping track of all six voices when I play it. Right, right. Yeah. But you can hear it. Can you? Or it sounds it works. It works. I haven't heard it. Oh, this it's a great one. Um, it's thought of to be one of the first compositions for actual piano. Oh, really? Because where Bach was when he improvised it was on this Silberman pianoforte. And so you can sort oh. of see some of these sections from this Richikari in three voices possibly mimicking crescendo and diminuendo effects, which is wild. Wild, yeah, because that, I never even knew he played piano. I, I didn't know it was uh, around. 
at that point it was being built um he sold a piano there's some documents of him selling a piano and talking about what setbacks it has what benefits it has but yeah right around the ter- the time of his death that <laughs> the was craigslist the yeah yeah the, Cra- craigslist. the craigslist leipzig yeah <laughs> that's wild yeah no i'm i'm le- i yeah i need to get my story straight because i i hear all the the myths and the uh all the legendary stuff but uh, and everyone loves Bach, you know, but but no one no one goes super deep, you know. Well, so can you just give us um, some of your background? Like, what does the twelve year old Jack Stratton look like with music? What kind of things are you doing at age twelve with music? Twelve. What grade is that? Sixth grade. I guess sixth grade. Yeah. Six. Yeah. Um, by then, I was I was playing drum set. And, uh, you know, taking lessons on drum set and playing trumpet in the school band and had a Beatles uh, cover band with a friend I still work with, Rob Stenson, who did the visual, mind you, of the that Bach animation uh, that Wolfpack put out. He was he was kind of the John Lennon guitar and vocals, and I was just playing drums and we had a bass and so that's that's where it was at at 12 just just uh getting into uh probably getting deeper into the beatles and michael jackson and yeah sixth grade i don't i don't quite remember um cream i liked cream pretty early on yeah wasn't wasn't into bach at that point (laughs) no no chance (laughs) um what came first the love of jazz or the love of bach uh, probably around the same time in college, I could just start to hear both of that, both, uh, hear what they actually were. Like prior to that, it just kind of sounded like jazz and just kind of sounded like classical music to me. Just, you know, just was a vibe. Yeah. And then <laughs> started to be able to hear it a little bit and then being able to really hear, you know, the different, uh, composers within it or be you know potentially being able to pick them out but but yeah i i i still haven't really gotten past bach and i've never really gotten past like oscar peterson <laughs> like the first people i could hear i still haven't gone past them really do you, do you associate yourself with with one instrument like if you were on a desert island but you could only have one instrument what what instrument would it be what what would you bring probably a keyboard probably that's what i just play the most in my room uh just jam out on piano uh but it actually it's um yeah yeah that that's probably it but bass bass and drums and bass and drums are probably what i'm better at but uh but yeah the the keys just because they're uh you know for composition and whatnot um, do you have a schedule, you know, with how you practice all the different instruments? Are you, you know, do you say, okay, I'm going to do this much guitar a day, or is it just kind of? No, no, no. I, I just kind of, uh, I just keep them out, which is, which is the usual advice. Keep them laying around, and uh, uh, maybe, maybe learn, try to learn something. I've tried, I've tried to play some Bach on on keys, but I, I have just, I don't have the gift for finger dexterity. You know, I can like. I kind of have these, uh, you know, I, I can play, I, I don't know, I don't know what it's called, but just 
I can hit it. I can hit my whole hand on the, <laughs> the keyboard. But like Woody, the other guy in Wolfpack, he can. He's got great interfinger stuff, and he he can play. He's played some box stuff over the years, and uh, he can actually do it. I I, I could never. D- really do it and I, I i tried for like a a good little while to to get it happening and it's just like they don't freaking work that you know you got to have a real special gift to do to do that stuff or i just didn't start young enough probably not though i bet i bet even if i started young it wouldn't have worked it's funny because i learned about wolfpack actually through the wikipedia page on the art of fugue no way. Yes way. No freaking way. Yes way. And I thought it's quite an accomplishment because then you have the list of notable harpsichord recordings, the pianists, <laughs> the organists, the string quartet, and then under other, there it is, Wolfpack. And I thought, wow, okay. So then, Oh, my God. Then from there, so I, th- my question is, do you have anything to do with that Wikipedia entry? No, no, no. That's a good question, though, because I've, I have messed around on Wikipedia in the past. I don't I don't know who you could probably look up who edited it. Is it the Talkbox one or the recent synthesizer one? It says there's a complete arrangement of the Artifugue by Wolfbeck. Uh, which that, I was yeah, that's not true. very excited about but uh, disappointed to find that you've you've arranged the ninth contrapuntus. Yeah, yeah, I've only I've only messed with with number 9. Okay. Yeah. Which which I'm ex- I'm waiting for you to get there on the podcast because that's the only one I can really uh, dig into. It, it it is special, right? Nine? Would you agree? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. I I I, I thought it was when I heard it. I was like, whoa, this one's. I I think until the like last twenty seconds. Do you do you hear that? Do you hear that? W- that it's special until the last twenty seconds. The last twenty seconds have never. Uh, like I, I can't follow them as easily as leading up to there. <laughs> um, let me grab the score. Hold on. Let me grab the score. <laughs> no way. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I've, I'm just, I'm, I'm Clive Davis over here, just trying to find the hook. You know. I'm wondering if you know what he means when he says "a la duodecima." No, I don't. Okay. Um, Does that mean the last quarter's not totally sick? Is that what that translates? <laughs> it's um, you know, it means at the twelfth. So it's counterpoint. Okay. It's counterpoint that simultaneously functions at the unison and at the twelfth. So you have these two themes here. You've obviously got your art of fugue theme, da dee dum bum, and you have your right. other theme, which starts the fugue. Bum, yeah. So when he brings in both themes at the same time, he first does it at the octave or the unison. But then right around the golden section, he combines both of them, but he shifts the interval at which they're imitating each other to show that not only is this double counterpoint, but it's functional at two different levels. And the, the next fugue, the fugue after nine, is a double fugue at the decima, where the counterpoint functions at the tenth as well as the unison. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm Yeah, I'm so out of my... I'm so... That's so high level. That is so high level. Yeah, I'm hanging. I'm hanging on for dear life at that point. I mean, I mean, the magic trick to me is he's got four voices going on, and it sounds like music. It's like, damn, that is crazy. Yeah, that that is seriously difficult to do. <laughs> I, I will remain the uh, 
the awestruck uh, audience member of the, of of this magician. But you, you're getting it. You're 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 going into you know how they uh, saw the body in half. You're really going for it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, on your on your YouTube channel, you have these two videos dedicated to this fugue. Can you tell us what you're trying to impart by sharing Bach and by sharing this very you know, difficult, complicated music. What are you trying to show? Yeah, you you were quoting someone where you said it's it strikes a balance between being enjoyable right before it gets into just insanity. Like Bach is right there at that crossing. And I've always felt that where it's just it's it's really it sounds great. It sounds awesome and it's so complicated. Yeah, so I I think people people enjoy that feeling. You know, they they kind of feel smart or something that they're actually getting pleasure from something that's so intellectual in a way. So it uh you know, you feel good about yourself in actually enjoying it versus, you know, feigning that you uh are entertained by something just so out there. I think people really do just like it. I think Bach in particular kind of uh, is overlooked in a big way, you know, maybe because he wasn't playing much piano. Yeah, what do you think about people playing it all on piano now? Does that, does that, have you ever thought about that? Well, of course, I'm, I'm a pianist, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but like Glenn, Glenn Gould and is, you know, I've, I've heard people say that that's how Bach would have played it or you know do you think that's true i mean it's on a piano right about gould yeah i've heard people say he's the best at interpreting the music but then i'm thinking well bach wasn't even playing it on a piano right no gould of course a long time idol of mine um yeah is totally pr- is probably about as far removed from how bach played it as you could get. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, I gotta, I gotta get these myths yeah. busted. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, I mean, yeah. What do you mean? Well, besides being on the piano, of course, which is well, okay. For starters, it's like look at the music, and you have to say, but the great thing about Bach is that it can be played like Gould and still be wonderful. And a lot of yeah. composers don't have such flexibility. You can't really, you can't really do that to most of the composers. But Bach. Somehow the construction, the foundation is so stable that you could have someone like Gould who almost on purpose tries to destroy the music as much as possible. Oh, really? And yet, and yet it can't be. Did he ever talk? Did he ever say something like that? That that was, he was trying to destroy it or is that? He did tend to make outrageous statements. Um, you know, <laughs> like, like he, he notoriously hated Mozart. He thought Mozart was a quote, bad <laughs> composer. He, 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 <laughs> you know. I mean, he was a he was a PR uh, genius. You know, he said that Mozart died too late, thirty five years old. <laughs> yeah, I never heard this. Yeah. Oh, he, uh. he and he said that Beethoven was a was a was a person involved in was so wrapped up in his own head that he convinced himself that his own ideas were good at a certain era. And he's he's sort of referring to the middle period of Beethoven, where Gould okay. sort of hated the the Emperor Concerto, the Fifth Piano Concerto. But while <laughs> while Gould was saying this, he's talking about an artist being in a surrounding where no matter what he does, the decision-making process in his mind is rationalized, and therefore anything that he does is a good idea. And while he was saying this about Beethoven, I couldn't help but thinking that this was exactly what Glenn Gould does. 
is that he he rationalizes mm-hmm. everything to a point where no matter what he does, you know, he somehow justifies it. And of course, the way that Bach, the way that Gould plays Bach is historically without precedent. It's lovely, but of course, it, it's it's an absolutely modern take on Bach. Interesting, like even the. Uh... The feel and stuff, especially or, the feel, especially the feel, because it was too, it was too much like a, too much to the metronome or not enough. Too much to the metronome. The thing okay. we we tend to forget that this music would have been played with an extreme amount of rubato and freedom, oh, really? especially a large scale beat. You know, the the large beat would have still been in place, like say measures or two measures at a time, but uh, with within the measure there was this immense sense of of freedom and uh, interesting yeah and that that's really the feel of Bach is to be able to sort of bend the time because you know his his instrument was the harpsichord it's an instrument where you can't play you can't make a crescendo you you can't really differentiate the voices so your only method of bringing out the nuance and showing that there are four moving parts here is to kind of play each part with its own individual freedom right right yeah that did occur to me that he had to strut his stuff in the note choice so much because he didn't have that uh, uh velocity sensitivity right my friend rob who i mentioned who did the animation he's big on you know artists at their given time in their life we we discount how much they were a product of the technology available you know would bach be writing that stuff if he was a p if he if his first instrument was piano you know yeah, I mean, they're theoretically interesting questions, but they can't be answered. I, I do think, though, that if, right. if, for example, there were a piano with pedals on it, the mm-hmm. way that Bach sort of approached instruments that could affect different levels of coloring, say, for example, like the two-manual harpsichord, was that he yeah. writes this Italian concerto for two manuals where he'll write an entire section for one manual and then switch in the next section to go with the second manual so that each piece is sort of divided into sections. And I did think that if Bach were composing some sort of a sonata or something for piano, he would switch between where the pedal is used and where the pedal is not used, and it would be extremely drastic. So he would have one section made all in scales where the pedal was not to be touched at all. And then on the next page, it would be, boom, the pedal down the entire time, and it would all be arpeggios or something like that. Like, I, I think Bach's thinking was sort of organized in terms of terraces like this. But, of course, that's unfounded on, on anything. I mean, it's just, it's just hypothesis, yeah? I got you. So he was, he, was, he was thinking about the instruments. He wasn't, he wasn't just fully just a fugal brain just existing would have been the same no matter what was no of course not you know the yeah right so they've often thought that i say they meaning um people who have approached the art of fugue have often said that it's not a work for any specified instrument because of the right because of the appearance of it in four staves and things like that but the truth is that every single second of it is playable on the harpsichord. And if you try and ah. do that with any other piece of box written in four staves, for example, like his choir music or something, it doesn't work. You know, the music for violin is so idiomatically violin-like and for, for right. cello and for flute and for everything. He knew exactly what he was writing the music for. Mm. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard that myth, too, that it wasn't written for keyboard. But then I've seen Gould play it. I'm like, what? 
he's playing it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. Right. We mentioned sort of what would Bach be doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I see <laughs> that Bach was working with a lot of constraints in his time. So he's saying with the art of fugue, he says, okay, I'm going to try and make 14 fugues based on this one subject. Wow. When tuning was a thing, he said, I'm going to make a prelude and fugue in all possible keys. I'm wondering if you have something similar to that with social media, because do you see social media like as a type of <laughs> constraint or some sort of a limit through which to focus? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, yes, I will. I will try to make uh, 40 TikToks off of one uh, one hip hip uh hip rotation no no i it's funny how uh you know i i'm moderately obsessed with um all the different platforms and what what works on what you know like uh we did something with nate smith the drummer and we were filming it and there's a little drum break in the beginning like within the first 20 seconds uh the first uh fearless flyers release and i was and i i told him i was like just just do something with he does these really fast things on the kick drum with one one pedal like freakishly fast i'm like do something do something right there cuz i i had a hunch that on facebook you know that would be like if, if that was earlier in the song rather than a musician's instinct to leave it for the last chorus to really play out and you know that thing went crazy on facebook so i don't know if i if that's why, you know, but yeah, and it didn't necessarily do much on YouTube, but our biggest tunes on YouTube are kind of us getting together in a basement and just jamming out videos. And those don't do well on Spotify where the like vocal tunes do really well, you know? So, um, it's all kind of a, uh, an interesting yeah, the, if if you're composing for a different uh platform, you know where it's going to uh I mean ultimately the best insurance policy is just to make good albums that work on YouTube and Spotify and people want to own a physical copy of it. You know, that's that's what I'm moving towards actually with uh like this Bach track is on the album versus Back in the day, I just would have put out a YouTube video of, you know, isn't this fun? You know, I kind of want to categorize everything into uh, albums just because just it's 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 more fun. I mean, that's very Bach, you know, or maybe that was all after Bach's life, the, the catalog, uh, you know, numbering. Every, was he doing that or is that were that a bunch of people after him who organized it? He was certainly doing it. Yeah, he certainly he was, collected yeah. his... He has an Opus 1 and an Opus okay, 2, yeah. et cetera, you know. Wow. Yeah, so, yeah, we're very similar, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, here's a, here's, a, here's a myth buster. Was he the baddest improviser of his day? Would he just, I've heard he would just ruin ruin everyone. Oh, sure. Is that true? Oh, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I mean, there's, and, there's that story uh, between him and Louis Marchand, who is supposed to be this incredible French improviser. And um, <laughs> I forget exactly which town this was in. But, I love uh, it already. The, the king had invited both Bach and Marchand to have this improvising contest. And um, the day of the contest, Bach is there, but Marchand has taken the first 
carriage out of the city. And <laughs> the legend has it that Marchand heard Bach practicing the night before and just couldn't face what was going to be certain defeat. Would this have been on Oregon? Harpsichord. Harpsichord. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is that generally where they would where they would duel? Is the harp or would it Oregon doesn't really matter? Oh, I'm sure it matters. Um I you know, I guess the famous duels are are this one of Bach and Mozart versus Clementi. Mozart and Clementi was done on a pianoforte. I, I loved that, though, the Mozart and Clementi one, because apparently Mozart was hailed as the greater improviser, but Clementi was hailed as the person with better chops. Oh, interesting. Which is which is really interesting, isn't it? Right, right. Okay, yeah, there's probably some modern analogs to that. Yeah, that's interesting. I want to talk about fugue state. And yes, I yes. thought fugue state was another reference to art of fugue, but actually... I realized that a fugue state, this is now coming from Wikipedia, in a psychogenic fugue, an individual may wander away from home or work and assume a new identity, cannot remember his previous identity, and upon recovering, cannot recall the events that occurred during the fugue state. In many cases, the disturbance lasts only a few hours or days, but in severe conditions, it can last months or even longer." To me, this is exactly what your composition of fugue state does. It begins with this very grooving section and then wanders off into something which is fugue-like and then comes back. So my question is, what came first? The composition or reading about what a fugue state is? Um, I I think I was in a heavy Bach Bach period and I I can't I can't write fugues. I've never I've never uh never really tried or I, I have tried and failed. So Woody, who can play Bach, I was like, dude, write write something with a fugue in it. I don't know if those were two separate ideas initially. I I think it was all part of his an original demo was the grooving section and then going into the fugue. Um so he yeah, he I th- I think it was just a prompt from me where I was like, dude, write write something with a fugue in it, please. And then, yeah, I I knew the, uh, I think I had I had heard that term somewhere else, and just uh, on a psycho some psychologist talking about it, and just uh, thought it was a good title. So I I I don't know, but yeah, yeah, that that little that little counterpoint in there, he I don't think I don't think he would claim to be on. Uh, he hasn't like studied fugues he he can improvise little two-part stuff you know which has always blown my mind yeah he, he can do it he can do it and uh i'm just a real sucker for that yeah i don't i don't know what he would say if uh if he was uh, if it will work at the octave and the 10th i don't know <laughs> how deep he was going with his uh with his layers there but but it gets i think it gets the point across and uh it's it's hooky, you know. I've seen other people play it on a single keyboard each part, and it's it's nice, you know. The uh, we we split it up between the instruments. You you've seen people doing transcriptions of that section. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> He's got it. There's there's yeah. He he knows he knows he knows what some of those moves are. Some of the some of the he's got some of those moves down, where uh, where I don't. You know, it's it's it, that's 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 what's kind of that's why it's somewhat accessible 
the Bach stuff is uh, most everyone can hear it. Very, very few can do it, just which is the magic. So Bach has these Easter eggs in his music. Mm. You know, he has okay. these areas where if you look closely enough, you can see him spelling his name or using <laughs> numerological references to spell out the number that his name represents. And it will sort of always remain unclear what Bach's intention was with these Easter eggs. A lot of your fans talk about your Easter eggs. So oh, yeah. wh what's your intention? Well, yeah, I was thinking about this on Instagram where I, I do things in meme format, you know, with the uh, text text above it. And I generally try to write stuff that's totally incoherent. And there's enough Wolf fans who are down with that that they will like it and comment on it. And then it will show up in the explore in people's explore tabs as a meme, you know, and they click on it and it's totally absurd. You know, it's and you, you see a meme and you you think it's going to make some sense. So I think a lot of the fans are in on the in on the joke of we're going to we're going to make this total nonsense go viral. And so it's it's kind of just a ongoing you know disinformation campaign that i that i'm leading that the fans are in on uh you know just to create a, you know an us and them narrative with <laughs> within the fan base so so yeah those there's there's a growing list of inside jokes that uh that you know just they 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 make no sense and it's 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 quite it's really fun I don't know how you'd go about figuring them all out. You know, it might be might be talking about like twenty five people who are just circulating these uh, these. You know, I've said no government subsidies for active bases in a video, bases with a battery in them, and that's just become this rallying cry <laughs> that shows up all over the the web now. Whenever I make an appearance it's just, you know people have no idea what they're referring to it's yeah it's fun so you founded wolfpack when you were in ann arbor can you tell us about encore records oh the vinyl the vinyl shop yeah i i was not into vinyl in college i i would i would uh you know just do the usual kind of uh just feel the vibes in there but i i wasn't deep we had some friends who worked there I think is is it still there? I I hope sure. I think it's one of the survivors. Yeah. What about Nirvana? They made this one club really famous in Ann Arbor. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, the Blind Pig. Yeah, we certainly played there. That was definitely the club to uh, to play uh, as a, as a, uh, you know it was it was it was the the club. I don't I don't know what might be six hundred person, and you know if if you could sell it out. That was the that was like the uh, the big deal for the bands in Ann Arbor, and great shows would come there through there. I I we went back to play there. I had a horrible experience with the bouncer. Not, you know, he confiscated someone's real ID, so she was stuck outside the club without her actual ID, and it was like, oh come on, guys, you know. So that that was. Uh, yeah, but but yeah, leg legendary spot. I don't know what they're doing right now. Yeah, Nirvana. Nirvana really liked it. What for whatever that's worth, you know. <laughs> yeah. So your father's a klezmer musician. Do you see right. a connection between klezmer music and Bach? Huh. 
I mean, uh, I don't, I don't know. The the we had um, Michael Winograd, the clarinetist, open our show at Madison Square Garden, and he plays kind of in the style of what a klezmer musician would be doing in New York City in like the you know 1920s or something. You know, Dave Terrace style klezmer. That's his Bach, Dave Terrace, who is a guy in New York. Uh, in the early or jamming out in the early early part of the century, I believe. I believe. Oh man, I don't want to get this wrong, but there was the feud there. Of uh, the feud there was Naftuli Brandwine and Dave Terrace. These were like this was the the original battle for Brooklyn. These two klezmer clarinetists, and I believe Terrace was the one that could play Bach. Like he had, he had, he was legit. He was studied, and Naftuli was more of the feel guy, just just from the heart. So those those er those that style of klezmer, a lot of those guys were legit and could. Uh, I mean, you listen to Winograd, and it's like it's it's pretty it's pretty serious chops plus plus melodies plus the harmonies moving. You know, it it's not all just just straight D minor. You know, they, they they'll get ar- they'll get around the whole. You know, I I don't know if that's Winograd's spin on it, but when he plays, I I hear I hear that level of uh, complexity meets meets uh, accessibility that I that I get. But but yeah I, I, yeah 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 I could I could. I I could see that there's definitely the like the legends of klezmer that are kind of spoken about in a similar way. They're they're, they're later in history though. They're all Americans and stuff. Now you're you seem to be somewhat of a Germanophile. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the title of your possibly um, infinitely forthcoming greatest hits album, Kunstwerk. I ca- obviously <laughs> I can't help but draw a connection between. Fugue state, Kunstwerk, the art of fugue, die Kunst der Fuge, and thinking that you know Bach has some sort of long-term planning with regards <laughs> to you and your career. I mean, why why the Germanophilia? Man, great great question, great question. I you know I no one's ever accused me of that, but I'm down, I'm down. Uh, I guess early on, Wolfpack, you know, is a German. Well, unfortunately, I even got that wrong. That a, a German would, if you presented a German with the word Wolfpack, they would say Wolfpack. But in my head, I thought it was Wolfpack. I just I mutated that. So yeah, the whole German thing just seen at at the time at the time in college, it was like going over to Europe to play music was kind of a a very cool idea, and you know some some of the best musicians my age you know oh yeah we uh, played in zurich or something she's like oh that sounds cool <laughs> and so i was like you know what we're just gonna pretend that we're europeans and and american college students will think we're uh just an ounce cooler and uh <laughs> that's about the extent of it the fact that it was all around the german thing that that I've said I've said in the past, but there was there was a producer there, Reinhold Mack, who was just, and I think a lot of the British musicians like Queen and ELO were 
recording in Germany for some tax benefits because it was a, a rough time and uh, for taxes, I guess. I don't know the specifics of that or how they were saving money by doing that. So they all ended up at this guy's studio in Munich and he happened to be getting like just insanely great sounds. So I love all those records that were made in Germany. So I guess that's that's how I landed on the German thing. And yeah, is Bach is Bach straight German or is have the borders changed or something? Was he just a German dude? He was pretty German. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He was one of the few composers that um, that didn't travel. The furthest away oh, really? he ever went from home was to um, was to Berlin, was to Potsdam, um, you know, for that journey to uh, King Frederick. But uh, actually, oh, so the French, the French duel, they had to come to him to. Uh... He, the French <laughs> Marchand was, I think, dismissed from the Parisian court, and was was wandering around in Germany, sort of showcasing his. His technique uh. when uh, whomever was at uh, where I, I'm it's too bad I can't remember the place um, might have been like Weimar or something like that all right all right so uh, so Bach was pretty freaking German okay good to know Bach good was very know. German you, ne- you never you never know in that era or I guess maybe later than his era they were all they were all I don't know just kind of everywhere all over Europe you know and talking to each other and like was Mozart what was Mozart's was he working out of where he was born or was he just all over the place Mozart is referred to by Alan Watts as the first genius of Europe and it's there you go and it's because Mozart left his employment to sort of become what we now know as a freelancer but Mozart was really mm-hmm. the first freelancer in music and he <laughs> he left famously he left his court position in Salzburg and went to Vienna. In where? In where? Salzburg. Okay, okay. He went to Vienna. He's from Salzburg and he and he went to Vienna. And of course ultimately it didn't work out for him. He 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 spent a few years in declining health in Vienna and then died at age 35. Yeah. My uh my my OG uh, Jewish name was Salzburg. Really? I changed to yeah. Stratton, uh, is the, yeah. So I guess, I guess, yeah. That's uh, I I, I didn't know that. That's it. Well, that's let's it. let's let's talk about your name, because uh, <laughs> I've thought about a few things. Um, B A C H using the musicological, or excuse me, the numerical alphabet, where A equals one, B equals two, C equals three, etc. B A C H equals fourteen, and this was box number. So I've been thinking about oh, really? your name, and you have J-A-C-K. So you have, firstly, the two middle letters are the same, Jack and Bach. J plus A plus C plus K equals 25. Okay. There are a couple systems where you can spell your name uh, musically. Uh, so I've come up with a few of them. So J-A-C-K, using the French musical alphabet, is C-sharp, A, C-natural, D. Mm-hmm. And Stratton can be made many different ways. Here's one. S is the German ES, which means E-flat. T is like <laughs> do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, but T is the B-flat and not the B-natural. R for re would be a D. A, obviously A. T, T again. The, the O. Sometimes composers omit certain vowels. And then another N. So you come up with this, the musical melody. E-flat, 
B flat, D, A, B flat, B flat, and then G or F, depending on how you count up to the end. Okay. So I'm going to send these to you and see if you can sort of put some Easter eggs into your next. Uh, okay. Uh, see, see okay. If you can start sweet. Spelling, sweet. Spelling Jack and Stratton. I like that. I like that. Yeah. No, I, I, I haven't experimented much with like musical. Uh, I guess there, there's a moment. There's a moment in a song where we go, uh, Roberta Flack, Donny Hathaway, Frank Sinatra, and that is straight from a Steely Dan documentary. Uh, where Bernard Purdy's listing off who he's played with. So people who just happen to be watching that documentary who know the song are in for a real treat, um, which has happened many, many times. <laughs> they think they're going a little crazy. But yes, it's true. We, yeah, there's a, there's a few. Yeah, they, I guess most of them do relate to Steely Dan. We we put coded Steely Dan references in, into a lot of... Uh, a lot of the music they he's i think he's the bach bach nerd fagan i would guess oh yeah i know he's yeah okay okay you sense that, um yeah. well no actually i don't know i'd have to ask i'd have to ask my guru if he, <laughs> if uh if steely dan was 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 into was into bach but i, I have a feeling i yes. think i think they've ripped off uh one of the one of the organ toccatas uh for a tune, I think I've maybe the harmony from it or something. So there, he's hip. He's hip. I, I was going to ask you. I I remember in college hearing pieces. You know, Mozart would just kind of put a Bach piece on violins or something, kind of a rearrangement. Right. Was that was that kosher back in the day? Were, were people like, hey, he's ripping him off, or was that just kind of how it was done? Oh no, well. Mozart doesn't publish those fugues under his own name. Oh, he doesn't? Okay. Yeah, those fugues, those uh, string trio transcriptions you're referring to were these organ sonatas that Bach wrote, which are about the hardest thing you could possibly play on organ. There are three obligato lines, <laughs> one hand on one keyboard each, and the feet on yet another keyboard made of pedals. So in order to play this three-part music, you need to be a virtuoso organist, which at Mozart's time was pretty much forgotten but the music of course oh really was was still in high demand especially from the mozart who had just discovered bach at age 25 or something like that so he made these what's up with that what's up with that what's up with that it's the it's the um it's that music instead of being ideal for many years was purely functional but when mozart was in leipzig he happened to hear a performance of one of the motets and he sort of perked up in his seat because he knew who old Bach was, but he had never been able to hear this. And whatever Bach pieces would have been coming down to Mozart would certainly have not been these motets for double choirs or something like this. So he heard this right. music and absolutely freaked out. And from then on, his, his music was changed. Much more contrapuntal. And he started writing See, fugues. that, that, I've never... I. I've never heard that. Is all see so so Mozart was down in a big way. He must have been. The great quote from Mozart is that at the end of this motet, he exclaimed aloud, "Now finally, there's something we can learn from." Because you have you you have to imagine him with uh, with so much capabilities. I mean, he was Mozart. He could have done everything. He would have probably right. been starved for someone who was a greater master at music, and and he found him. That's cool. I yeah, I always yeah, I you're yeah, you're helping me connect the dots because was men were Mendelssohn and Mozart 
relatively similar time frames? Would they have been alive at the same time? Mendelssohn was later. So so the myth is that like Mendelssohn brought Bach back. He like revived it, but Mozart was already down. Everyone was already down, especially if you were a musician, especially if you were a composer. <laughs> Bach never left the consciousness of, okay. of, of the musical elite in Europe. But what Mendelssohn did was revive a piece that would have been performed in a specific time in a specific setting, and he brought it into the concert hall. Oh, really? Okay. So when we say that Mendelssohn revived Bach, really what Mendelssohn did was sort of revolutionize the way that Bach could have been heard. Oh, because Bach, Bach stuff wouldn't have been played by by orchestras or concert halls? In concert halls, essentially, yeah. I mean, what M- Mozart was hearing was a liturgical, was a celebration of the Mass in Leipzig, uh. where the music would have been serving the same function in the Mass that it had been since the death of Bach. Oh. And so Mendelssohn so it hadn't, said... It hadn't gone commercial. It hadn't gone commercial It hadn't yet. gone commercial, yeah. Wild, wild. Mendelssohn said, you know, this piece makes a perfectly good concert piece, and let's do it. Mm. He was like 18. I think he was 18 at the time when he revived the St. Matthew Passion. So but at some point between Bach and even Mozart, the concert hall thing happened. That wasn't a thing prior to that. It would all just have been church prior to that? It's an excellent That's, question. There's similar venues, I guess. There was court music, music performed in courts and things like this. But the idea okay. of the recital was certainly one that came in the 19th century. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. In fact, so this whole this this whole thing about playing music from memory was something that uh, Liszt started as sort of like a magic trick to sort of convince people of the spell, because in Bach's day, Bach himself wouldn't have been playing a single one of these compositions by memory, no matter the quality of his imaginative capabilities, you know. He he would have used sheet music, and so this sort of myth we can think about someone sitting down at the organ and just, you know, he would have had a guy there turning pages and and everything. Huh, but but the improvising stuff, that would have been... That would have been off the top. The improvising was obviously off the top, but um, I think that someone like Bach would have given precedence to composition over improvising. Okay, okay. And through composing would learn how to improvise, not the other way around. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I would have gotten smoked back then. I would have, I would have been just making shoes or something. (laughs) I'm, I'm, I have no chops. I got no chops in the like writing notes first camp, but I, I've met a few people who who that's how they roll, you know. And I'm always I'm always really impressed by that. Do you have a type of creative process that you often follow, or is it different every time? I mean, I'm I'm just I, yeah I, I you know I I get into the uh, the instruments and the sounds and uh, you know the feel the feel of the thing. Like I'll write on. Uh, Wurlitzer or a piano or something, you know, you get you get different results. So I I kind of kind of start with the uh, the timbres, and uh, hopefully if it's good enough, like Bach, you, you it could be played on anything and still still get the same point across. But sometimes sometimes things just sound good on a, a really you know a tacky piano or something, you know. So I, yeah, I, I'm kind of coming from the uh, the sonic side a little bit more, which they all must have been gear nerds, right? They were all gear nerds. Like Bach, did he have some some collection of claviers? Oh, or something? I like see. He, yeah. yeah. Well, in that in that era, 
to the extent that everyone was an instrument player, they were also an instrument builder, an inventor, and repair person. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that Speaking was the profession. Which, you know, it was music. Uh, wait, go ahead. Go ahead. I said that was the profession. It was, it was music. It was all aspects of music, building, tuning, repairing. Oh. You know, the, I, I think someone like Bach would have found it perverse that a professional pianist has some other guy tune the piano before the professional I mean there's so much you know <laughs> segregation uh, among musicians today but back then they were all aspects of it interesting yeah yeah the uh specialization of labor has gotten so laser focused now did uh speaking of which i've had a uh i have a freebie up for grabs whoever whoever wants this one well the well-mannered clavier right Right, the well-tempered, okay. well-tempered clavier. Oh, sorry, the well-tempered. Oh, the well-mannered, well-mannered is 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 very nice. I'm screwing it up. I'm screwing up. And then you do the ill-mannered clavinet, where you play well-tempered clavier on like a a nasty clavinet sound and kind of like with a little more groove or something. I, I've already heard you do it actually, or something <laughs> like it. It's the- just one of your little sign-offs. I was like, whoa, <laughs> same wavelength. There is, um, I feel like Somerset Maugham or someone wrote a novel called The Ill-Tempered Clavichord. Oh, shoot. <laughs> I, feel, okay. I feel like um, someone's beat us to it. I mean, of course. And then there's P.D. Kubach, who, who wrote, right. like, has the whole album about the ill-tempered clavier and other disastrous experiments or something like that. All right. All right. All right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But this would be, this would actually like, you know, be sick. You know what I would like to hear is some, you know, some Wolfpack in um, just temperament or some of these Baroque temperaments instead of <laughs> instead of equal temperament, and then have the experts, you know. Does that bug you? Are you like that deep on it yet? Like, can you? Or maybe I was hearing you talk about it, where it's like music. Ever since the uh, pianos have been tuned to just, like, I can't enjoy this or that. Is that was that you? I, I don't think I said I can't enjoy it, but the, you know, there's that that book with the with the great title, though the book isn't that interesting. It's um, how equal temperament ruined music and why you should care. Okay, okay, that was it. That was it. Yeah. You see, I the <laughs> the most the greatest quote I ever read about the issue of well temperament versus just temperament or something like that, or, or rather equal temperament versus well temperament, is that we traded one type of beauty for another type of beauty. And so mm. we traded the beauty of like the pure mathematical relationships in the triad with the ability to modulate to different keys. Exactly right. And so um, I, I'm team team equal. You're team I mean, equal. Got to be right. I, I guess I've never heard is oh is there somewhere I could hear some because uh, Bach would have been just right. That was the thing about the well-tempered clavichord is that it was the clavichord that could play, or it's not clavichord, it's clavier, which just means keyboard instrument, but it's the it's the keyboard oh, instrument okay. that could play in all 24 keys. But this didn't mean that it was equal. It just meant that all 24 keys could be heard. So, so you have to imagine that his A-flat major sounded very different from his D major. Oh my gosh. Okay. Okay. So he was trying to write, the challenge was to write and still have it sound good enough? The challenge was also to come up with a tuning scheme, a temperament, that could accommodate for such a thing. 
Oh, really? Yeah. And so, in fact, this doodle page, the front, I call it a doodle page, but it's the title page of the Well-Tempered Clavier. There's this little squiggle on the top of it. And people were looking at that little squiggle for 200 years before they realized that the squiggle was actually a key to the tuning scheme. Huh. Huh. So he equal temperament didn't even exist when he was doing that, right? It did. And there are some people who think that what Bach meant when he said the well-tempered clavier was equal temperament. But this is an area of really truly scholarly debate. Most people think that he did not mean equal temperament, but that he meant something that was sort of closer to, you know, a temperament which favored the dark qualities of keys with flats and the bright quality of the, the keys with, oh. with sharps. Oh. Yeah. Okay. That's that's it. Wow, yeah, this is this is pretty out. Well, I, yeah, I I'm hanging on for dear life if anyone's listening, but I I can hang. You know, I can hang. Yeah, I'm I'm coming in. I'm coming in pretty late to the game. <laughs> I've never questioned these things, you know. I've never really questioned uh what my Casio is tuned in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I'm uh I'm learning. I'm learning a bunch. Do you what was I going to ask? Something about, uh, do you look at his uh, handwriting uh, when you look at Art of Fugue and you're going through it? Are you actually looking at his handwriting? For reference, you know, I mean, his handwriting is oftentimes a way to sort of catch a glimpse of maybe the expression that is not there in the print. Right, His right. His handwriting was so beautiful and so refined that, you know, almost at a glance now, though it took me a while to differentiate between, say, his wife's handwriting or his son's or his students. <laughs> but now now you can really see the master's handwriting, and it really does look like, you know, the Rembrandt studio, where you see the master and then you see all of his students sort of trying to do it in the same style. And at first glance, uh -huh. you, oh, yeah, of course, it all looks like the same. But then you just notice there's that one thing. It's like the way that he sort of circles his half notes or or, you know, does his treble clef or something. That's like, there's such calligraphy in it. It's it's incredible. And so if you sat down to play some Art of Fugue, you'd read it from his handwriting generally, or you'd something a little more spaced out? I, um, I suffer from the list dementia, which is to play everything from memory when possible. So right now I'm, I'm of <laughs> course I'm trying to memorize the art of fugue. But no, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't play it from the from the manuscript. Um it's just a little too hard to read if you're cruising through it. Gotcha. gotcha Although it's gotcha. possible once you know the piece well enough and uh and do it. You're trying to memorize Art of Fugue on keys? Oh sure. Jeez man. Jeez. <laughs> oh man. That's intense. Well, there's that there's that tradition of, of Baroque musicians um, who would sort of play a piece if they had it copied out. So you can see a lot of Baroque, you know, historic practice musicians playing from copies that they themselves write out by hand because there's a tremendous amount to be learned from from doing that. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, wow, that's that's uh, apparently apparently Bach would even uh, be a little confused by what <laughs> you are you're doing like what do you say like why why memorize it or something yeah one one has to one has to think about why why memorizing it you know um I, I, recently i was doing the whole well-tempered clavier from memory and then doing it also with the music and sort of wondering what the difference in the final product was mm. for, for me i've sort of just resigned myself to it's a personal goal and that's about it it's a personal goal that i'm going to try and memorize <laughs> okay. this we're going to try and memorize that but you know i can't back it up with 
this sounds better than that or you know anything like right. that. Gould, Gould was a memory guy, right? He was a memory guy, but I'm not sure how much of that is rehearsed. Ah, uh, you know, okay. he he's always very careful with his television appearances and everything to have just the right portion of of Bach by memory and things like this. But I somehow I think somehow I think that it was very very carefully scripted and rehearsed. I like I like some of his approach, as, you know, even the way I've you know put it on synth or or you'll you'll put it into just sign tones. There's something nice about the hearing it in a rigid presentation, which oh, yeah. is kind of Gould's approach, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 cool. I've always, I always kind of dug that. Yeah, that that was kind of part of the idea of putting it on synth, and it's a it's a pretty expressive synth, or it sounds kind of like string like, but it's fun to just hear it on sine tones. Yeah. Are you able to get something out of the visualization? Of it, I, I certainly do get things out of the visualization of it when it's when you can see all the contrapuntal lines represented in some sort of glowing color. Yeah, I love I love that. I love that. I think that's the uh, I think that's the magic of of getting people through the whole piece. Your typical, it's like it's this hypnotic thing, and and Bach is almost like trolling you with. It feels like it's about to end the entire song. You know, <laughs> and you're just you're just sitting in that, and it's uh, it's a, it's a funny feeling. Yeah, the vi- the visual is uh, is I think I think the key to to it, it crossing over because because uh, I yeah, if you can't read music, you you still yeah, you get to feel you get to feel even smarter, I guess. But yeah, I've always I've actually always been partial, kind of as a drummer. I've always been partial to MIDI notation and standard notation. It's like reading standard notation of drum parts in in high school, and like this is totally absurd. But yeah, it's kind of cool to see Bach in 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 MIDI too, where you see the uh, you see the actual distance a little clearer, you know, or to scale. I I have something um, that I do whenever I can't understand. Bach piece or don't really uh, you know get what's going on harmonically or melodically which is that I I put it in MIDI and I listen to it oh really because in that yeah. way you can just hear the pure structure of it and the architecture and then once you understand that then maybe you can go revisit the recording that was giving you a little bit of a problem and you can understand why the player is making a little bit of rubato here or an ornament there because now you have this foundation but yeah I would recommend right. that I would recommend listening to MIDI Bach to almost anybody you know, as a, cool, as a good, as a good cool. starting point, yeah. Cool, yeah, yeah. I, I hope it's. I hope what we what we put out is kind of a uh, a springboard. Yeah, someone tweeted back a the uh, string quartet playing number nine. Mm-hmm. It was so so freaking good, and you know, I, I probably wouldn't have found that without putting out our version. Do you check out Artifuge on strings and stuff? Is that there's that one that? recording by the Kellner Quartet? I love. And do, do they play through the whole the whole thing? They play all fourteen contrapuntists and the canons and everything. Yeah. So where where does Artifuge sit versus you know well tempered clavier? They're quite they're they're entirely different, right? Exercises. Is is Artifuge kind of the the magnum opus? In a way, in a way, yes, but also. No, um, you know, you get a lot more maybe soul states in the well-tempered clavier. 
that you know you have two books of the wild temper clavier one is at the early point in his career 1722 or 1723 he's he's a young man 35 or something like that and then you have book two which is completed around 1747 you know he's it's 20 years later 25 years later oh wow wow and, um, and so you get to see like the breadth of his compositional knowledge you can see him even hearkening back to palestrina uh, in in book two, and also looking forward to the classical style, he has several preludes in book two, which are almost exactly like sonata allegro forms that you would see in in Haydn or or Mozart oh, or even wow. even early Beethoven. But yeah, then you do have the Art of Fugue, which is just like some of it is so forward thinking and so mm. chromatic that when you play it right. on on like a on the right instrument, like like a Casio or a synth or something like that, you you it's just the sound is so incredible. You think like not even Wagner, not even, you know, Schoenberg could 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 think like this. And just these moments where if you excerpted two seconds of this and you said, who, which composer is this? No way anyone is saying Bach. It sounds way too dissonant, way too out there. Ah, way too hip. Yeah, way too hip. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I get that. I That's what threw me off as, a, as an innocent uh, third party looking at, you know, I, I heard Bach and I was like, wait, this guy was before everyone else? Like, what? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> or Art of Fugue specifically, I guess. It's like, it gets out, man. It gets really out. So when did you first hear Art of Fugue? Do you own a score of it? No, 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 no. I probably I, sh- I probably should. But uh, yeah, in college when I was like, I want, I want to do this fugue thing. I was like, well, Bach's like generally the guy for counterpoint. I I th- or I somehow knew that, and then I then I was like, oh, he wrote Art of Fugue. That's probably a good starting point. I didn't know it was like this. This uh, I didn't know it was it was so uh, such a big deal. I just thought it was like a collection of fugues. Right. But but yeah, but yeah, you're 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 out there just uh, really doing some uh, archaeology on it, which is it's interesting to hear. Yeah. Well, a few last things. Um. If yeah, you sure. could, if you could transfer all of your music, all your musical talent to a non-musical related area, what would it be? Um, I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, I wish I, I wish I was uh, a little better at programming. You know, I could never really do that. I wish I was, uh, I don't know, uh, freaking. Uh, uh, what am I, yeah, no, I've, I mean, like, every, everything, I, um, I mean, oh, you know what, I see, like, people on Instagram just, just drawing, like, it's nobody's business, they make it look so easy, and I, I, I was a decent drawer in, like, fourth grade, you know, I was doing all right, and I gave it up, but I was like, man, that, that looks so cool to just be able to draw, you know, and they're they're probably hurting, man. They're probably hurting, man. You know, like they used to probably go to work for Disney and make uh do those animated movies. These cats who could just draw, like seriously, you know. So and now they're on Instagram, but some of them build up huge followings. And but yeah, I I, I like that. I like that a lot. Are you a chess player? Uh not not no not very good. Who are your living non musical idols? I like, uh, uh, man, you know, I like, I like a few doctors, 
like Dean Ornish and Caldwell Esselstyn, and then I like I I don't I, I don't know I don't know you know I like some comedians Larry Larry David's new uh, season ten of Curb I feel like that's kind of uh, Art of Fugue level <laughs> uh, ma- masterpiece I was just like shocked at how good that was that is very is very very fugue like the intertwining storylines. <laughs> well, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. And so thanks oh, for Oh, likewise. Time. Yeah, no, you totally you totally set me straight on like a whole lot of uh gaps in my my public education. <laughs> Jack Stratton of Wolfpack, thanks so much for being here and um look forward to talking to you again. Likewise, thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. Thanks Eddie Barbash for putting us in touch. Thanks producer This Land Is for helping with the content. The next episode will cover the ninth contrapuntus of the Art of Fugue and we'll use one of these Wolfpack recordings so you can hear the arrangement of which we were speaking. Now before you go, I just want to know what the listeners think about Patreon and what you'd expect, say, if you were donating $10 to WTF Bach on a monthly basis. What do you want in return? A fugue, a toccata, an essay, an envelope? Send your suggestions to at WTFBach on Instagram or Bach at WTFBach.com in an email. And do follow that Instagram account at WTFBach because every day or almost every day I'm Instagramming a different piece of Bach's music and writing into the stories what makes that particular moment of the music unique. A quick few housekeeping issues during the interview. It was Brooklyn satirist S.J. Perlman, who wrote The Ill-Tempered Clavichord, and that's an embarrassing slip, not Somerset Mon. And when Mr. Stratton and I were talking about string recordings of the Art of Fugue, I mispronounced, of course, the Keller Quartet's name, and they can be heard in the episode about the seventh contrapuntus. Thanks. You are listening to the WTF Bach Podcast. We're a brand new podcast, and we, we want, want to hear, hear from, from you. You want a specific piece of Bach analyzed by Evan just for you? You want to partner with us? Write us. You can become a patron of WTF Bach. Go to patreon.com slash WTFBach. Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal at WTFBach. Find the links in the episode description. You can help this podcast stick around. What a, what a great, great day, day to be listening to WTFBach. I thought the world was flat until I saw it wore a hat. And then I discovered that the whole world was just fat its waistline underneath a cloak and thin hat. Meanwhile, its spine, just fine, and teeth are all in a straight line. White teeth, straight spine, white teeth, straight spine, John Baptiste. White teeth, straight spine, white teeth, straight spine, John Baptiste. White teeth, straight spine, white teeth, straight spine, John Baptiste.
lebet wieder. Unser Team, wir lebet wieder.